Welcome to Let It Be Easy with Susie Moore. When a friend of mine told me about this book called The Upside of Stress, initially I was like, yes, I already love that title and I want to read it. (laughs) And then my friend said to me, she's like, I feel as if this is so parallel to Let It Be Easy message. And so I went down a Kelly McGonigal, Dr. Kelly McGonigal, (laughs) rabbit hole, researching her, her work, checking out her incredible TED talk, and then diving straight into and loving her book, The Upside of Stress, right? Stress exists in our life, whether we like it or not. So why not learn to get good at it? Oh my, everything in me screams yes, even as I say these words to you. Having already spoken about Kelly's work, her book, to so many friends of mine already reading it, highlighting it, loving it. And so if you don't know her, Kelly McGonigal is a health psychologist and lecturer at Stanford University, who's known for her work in the field of science help, which focuses on translating insights from psychology and neuroscience into practical strategies that support health and well-being. Now, when you listen to this, I think that you probably want to have pen and paper at the ready nearby somewhere because Kelly says so many quotable, helpful things. And she shares new research and talks so passionately about this topic. Because look, if something is going to exist in our lives forever, don't we want to make peace with it? Don't we want to make friends with it and understand it? <laughs> I'm so thrilled to share this conversation with you. That could mark a true turning point in your life when it comes to stress. So I give you Dr. Kelly McGonagall. Dr. Kelly McGonagall. <laughs> you are here in the Zoom flesh with me and oh, I could not be happier. If you cannot tell already, I love, love, love your book, (laughs) The Upside of Stress, your talks, your interviews. And I I totally now want to know what those post-it notes are on. You know, like, right? Authors are obsessed. I would like pick one. I want get like, let's give the audience right now a taste. What is something that you flagged? Okay, I will I will share one right away. Speaking about stress, you're referencing here that a friend shared with you. This is towards the end of your book. My wife and I were reflecting that feeling exhausted at the end of the day is a sign that we gave it our all. And he's speaking about being exhausted, having a young son, and him and his wife are suffering from fatigue naturally. And just that reframe based on you know what he's learned from you, I just wanted to cry reading that. I thought it was so beautiful. Okay. You know what I love about the fact that you flagged that is because I know so much of your work is about helping people find more ease. And so right away, you're embracing this paradox, Mm -hmm. which is it's not that ease is incompatible with exhaustion. Sometimes life doesn't give you the option for it to be easy and Mm non-exhausting. Sometimes like you find the ease or the joy or the meaning when you can't change the circumstance so that it's ideal. Or it's, it's, and I, I love that that is the first thing that you shared because I feel like so much of my work is about helping people embrace opposites when you can't, um, you can't design yourself the perfect experience that you would like. 
Mm, and there is so much that we can't design, right? There's oh, yeah, no, I, no. <laughs> I, I, I designed a few dance classes that went really well, but otherwise. <laughs> it, you know, it's so interesting. Actually, a friend of mine also called Kelly, she recommended your book to me. She's like, because I speak a lot about ease, which is if I had to really summarize it, it's, you know, not meeting life with resistance. And yes having a lot of fun, frankly, too, like the suffering, but yeah, the stress that's, it is part of our experience, but you know, isn't the joke on us if we're going through life with just this heaviness all the time, like when does the change come? Where are the benefits? And you teach us Dr. Kelly McGonigal, who I'm just so happy to be speaking to, that there is so much meaning to be found in this. And the way that I love to frame up these interviews is I have, as well as you know, with all my notes here, I've copied and pasted some of my favorite parts of the book. And I just thought I'd read them out and we could discuss them. How does that sound? That sounds great. Amazing. So you say this, People with very meaningful lives worry more and have less stress than people with less meaningful lives. Let me tell you, when I read that study, I felt so validated. So yeah, this was a 2013 study. Um, some, Some folks at Stanford and some other researchers asked people, do you agree with this statement? I consider my life meaningful. Mm-hmm. And then they looked at like everything they could find that would predict whether or not someone agreed with that statement. Things like religion and family and what you do for work and how much money you have and what your hobbies are and personality traits. And uh, they found that, you know, there were a few things that you might guess predict meaning, like whether or not you find a way to uh, be of use in your community. You have those mm-hmm. like strong social relationships. But the thing that they hadn't expected is that stress, every way that they measured it was a positive predictor of meaning. And I love that they measured stress so many different ways, including how many minutes a day you estimate you spend worrying. But it was also things like how many stressful life events you've had um, in your past and even how um, pressured you feel by the demands in your life. And um, it doesn't mean that in the moments that you're most stressed, life feels the best. It is this paradox that stress is what arises in your mind, in your body, uh, when something that you care about is at stake. Mm. And some part of you believes there is an opportunity to make a difference. You don't get stressed if it doesn't matter. And you don't get stressed if there's no part of you that thinks there's anything you can do about it. Instead, you get depressed or you have a a defeat response. But stress is about this moment matters and there's something I can do or choose or say, there's somebody I can reach out to. There's a way of thinking about this that will make a difference. So if you have roles, relationships, goals in your life that are meaningful, um, you're going to experience more stress because there are going to be more moments that matter to you. Um, and I love that reframe because in moments of stress, it can, it can remind you to focus on who and what you care about, uh, and what really matters to you. My gosh, like, where do we even begin with this? Because we're taught the complete opposite is like eliminate stress, whatever you can do to get rid of the stress in your life. That's too stressful. Shut it down. That person gives, gives me stress. I'm cutting them out. Like we are taught something very, very different. (laughs) And in moments we're not stressed, we often do feel many times we feel relief. We, we feel happiness. There are, there are plenty of like positive states that are not defined by high levels of stress. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but unfortunately there doesn't seem to be a way to create a life full of love, learning, laughter, growth, positive connection, you know, contribution. Um, there doesn't seem to be a way to construct a life that is full of that, where you only get the positive states that have nothing to do with stress and you get none of the stress. Um, so that's the, but I totally understand why people want to hear it's possible to lead a stress free life Mm -hmm. because when you ask people to, to describe stress, they almost always go to the moment that feels the worst. That moment when you're feeling overwhelmed, you're feeling angry, paralyzed, sad, uh, something just switched where you thought things were going well. And then suddenly there's a conflict or a crisis. It makes total sense. We don't want that. And like you said, it's, and yet life we're human and life doesn't unfold in a way that lets us avoid that. So we're looking for ways to not resist the reality of being human and then, and find the ease and find the joy and find the Mm. meaning. Mm. And what I love that you uh, share Kelly is, you know, you are teaching, you know, how to reduce stress for a long time as a health Mm. psychologist. And then when you came across a study where you understood that our interpretation of stress is really the measure of the impact it has upon us, which of course set out all this great work. So please give me an opportunity to also correct the record on this study. Mm -hmm. I just saw a major news organization just sent out they're like teaching people how to deal well with stress. And the only part of my work they included was this one study, which is the study I tell at the opening of my Ted talk, which a lot of people have seen. Now, here's what I was trying to do with that study. Mm -hmm. That study was like uh, a revelation for me. I was telling a story. Yes. (laughs) Unfortunately, I now realize if you put a study at the beginning of a Ted talk, people are going to think that that study is the proof of the most important thing that has ever been proven by science and they forget everything else. So let me say what the study was, but the context that really matters Mm -hmm. is that it made me pay attention to the consequences of how we think about stress. So this was a study that tracked people for about a decade, Mm -hmm. uh, tens of thousands of people in the U S looking at how stressful their lives were Mm -hmm. and also whether or not they believe that stress was bad for their health. And what they found is a really interesting interaction effect. People who had very stressful lives at the beginning of the study were the most likely to be alive if they didn't believe stress was really harmful. Mm -hmm. People who had the most stressful lives were the least likely to be alive at the end of the study if they believed stress was very harmful for their health. Mm -hmm. And so these researchers were like, huh, maybe it's not the case that stress is always fatal. It's always bad for you. Maybe there's something interesting about whether or not people believe stress is bad for them. Now that study does not prove Mm -hmm. that if you think stress is bad for you, you're going to be dead in 10 years, which is like not the right interpretation, (laughs) nor does it, nor is like the most important thing I want to teach people to try to manipulate yourself into a different belief. Yeah. That study was revolutionary for me because I was working in a field in psychology, as well as working in in other areas like mind-body practices like yoga and meditation that literally sells itself as a way to reduce stress Mm -hmm. Um, and working uh, alongside people in the medical field, we had all been taught the single most important thing that you could tell people is that stress is bad for you. Like The entire foundation of health psychology and mind-body medicine is stress is bad. It'll kill you. You need to be less stressed. Mm -hmm. So for me, that study was like, Kelly, 
is this really what you want to organize your entire like contributions to the world around an idea that maybe may be harmful rather than helpful that that is not actually the thing that will reduce suffering and help people experience better lives so that led me to an investigation and when i actually started paying attention i did realize it actually became pretty clear that when you tell people stress is always bad for you and if you're stressed it's a toxic state and there's something wrong with your life and you're permanently damaged by it you know these messages that are very common Although you can find evidence for it in science and medicine, it's not like there's no truth to the fact that Mm -hmm. stress can be harmful and have Mm -hmm. long-term consequences that we don't want. Mm -hmm. When that is what your core message is, it exacerbates the harms of stress and it disempowers people. So that motivated me to find a new message that both research showed was empowering Mm -hmm. and that focused people on choices they could make through their actions, through their mindsets, through um, their connections with other people mm-hmm. that would, would truly reduce suffering and reduce some of the harmful effects of stress and uh, make people happier. Mm. You know? so, so that's what that study was about. Thank you for giving me a chance to, to spell it out there because every time I see that, that is like the single only thing that ever gets shared about that talk or my work, I'm like, oh man, I wish I'd started the talk some other way. <laughs> But it is powerful. I, but, but for the point, for the sake of brevity, sometimes the wrong things are taken and only focused upon for sure. But what what you explained so clearly in your work, and look, you know, Kelly, I was raised to believe that stress is really bad. My mom says to me, if you're so stressed out, like you, you'll lose your hair, like you won't be able to sleep, like you'll, you know, all these terrible things will happen. And look, you know, as you said, there are these side effects that stress, you know, mm-hmm. it has on our bodies, our minds. But I don't know, like kind of like kind of like you with, with the way that you describe, you know, stress and meaning so completely inextricably linked. Even um, yesterday I was coaching somebody who is doing something really scary in her business. And she's like, I think I'm going to vomit. I just feel like I'm going to vomit. And I'm like, so vomit. Like we call, yeah. we call that the detox or like the cleanse before the event. Yeah. I had so many people tell me they have GI issues and they're mm-hmm. like, okay, I get you can embrace a racing heart, but you know, what if you have to run to the bathroom before something important? Mm-hmm. I, you know, I do not believe that the goal in life is to control your body's responses to mm-hmm. moments that matter. And, and I, so funny, I did an interview with somebody who he was a football player, professional football player. And it was so interesting. He loved the game. When he was in the game, he said he felt like he was born for this. It was so central to meaning in his life and he loved it. But two things happened before every game, his entire career. One, when he was heading to the game, there was a voice in his head that says, I don't want to do this, which is interesting, right? It's that core foundational resistance that so many of us experience, even when we're doing something we want and that's meaningful. And then the second thing is he would throw up and it never changed. And he just found a way to accept it. So, okay. So tell me what advice you gave to this person who, besides, so, go ahead. Yeah. So, so kind of like you, Kelly, I think we believe that, like you explained, you know, we believe that if I'm going to vomit something bad or something, there's something wrong here. There's something wrong with me, this situation, it, it, there's something that has to change. There is an error. There's a problem. I always like to go, well, yeah, if that is what your body's feeling, go ahead. Like you're going to, I mean, okay. (laughs) it means your body thinks this is a moment that matters. That's what it means. And, you know, we experience it in different ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, there are different physiological signs. It's a little bit Mm -hmm. like anxiety, a little bit like excitement. Mm -hmm. Um, and there are things you can do 
to have to approach a situation like that where either you accept them or you can actually modify them, but not necessarily through the ways that people expect, which is that mm. I have to calm down. Yes. And, and everyone thinks that like the, the most important thing to do is take slow, deep breaths, lie down, relax, take a drug that reduces levels of sympathetic arousal. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of these things are things you could choose to do. I never want to tell people what not to do yeah. because I don't, I'm not actually in somebody else's body or life. And I don't know what their direct experience is. But I do know that for a lot of people, actually choosing to embrace arousal, physical sensations of anxiety, adrenaline, excitement, that when you change how you interpret them, they actually start to shift in a way that better serves focused action and connection. And that can be, it's slightly different than like a classic fight or flight response. Mm-hmm. But when you, if you're having a fight or flight response, and you're feeling those things like your heart pounding or you're sweating. I get butterflies in my stomach, uh, mm-hmm. also GI stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm like, oh, okay. My body has recognized it's time to show up. Mm-hmm. And I just accept it. It's more likely that I'm going to move into a challenge response, which is what it looks like when somebody has a burst of courage or they're in a flow state. Flow and courage are both stress responses. Certain levels of stress hormones go up when you're totally in the zone, including enjoying yourself or feeling like you're living your best life. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a stress response, but it's a slightly different ratio of stress hormones, slightly different set of emotions, um, some some other changes in what's happening in your body that that are healthier and serve us more. And I thought it was so fascinating how many studies show that if you're having a stress response that maybe isn't totally ideal, but you still accept it, that acceptance, that lack of resistance is what allows it to transform into a stress response that is going to serve you better. Mm. And don't you find too, that when you don't throw up resistance to whatever it is that feels like it should have resistance or that we should push against, everything kind of just shifts. You just, yeah. there is something just palpable that isn't even definable somehow. No, no. And you know, it's so funny. I learned that. So my, my earliest work was uh, looking at pain because I have experienced chronic pain since I was young. I mean, my experience of it now is very different than it was at its worst. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that really helped me was learning to stop resisting and avoiding things that might trigger pain. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I learned it like deep in my body and in my life that resistance and avoidance make things worse. I learned it first through pain. And then I actually was able to apply it to uh, anxiety and phobias. Same thing. Resistance makes it worse. Avoidance really makes it worse. And yet I kept holding out bull, but stress, especially chronic stress. Like when we're defining stress as bad things happening to you, things you don't want, things that no human deserves, that stuff is really bad and it's really toxic. Therefore, we really need to avoid it or reduce it, which is a, mm-hmm. another way of saying resist it. And I, I just did not want to apply what I'd learned about pain and anxiety to stress because I was afraid. I was afraid that somehow it was dismissing the reality of people suffering. Mm-hmm. But like, mm-hmm. is how could it possibly be true that we need to stop resisting and avoiding suffering? But of course that actually is like the essential teaching mm-hmm. of all of the, the wisdom traditions that, mm-hmm. uh, so anyways, but I, I, just, I say that because I want 
people to know, I understand if even in just hearing these messages, there's a part of them is like, oh, great. I want to change my stress response. And they're also like, okay, but you, you are not talking about me because what I've been through, nobody should have gone through, or you're not talking about me because Mm -hmm. I have panic attacks. You're not talking about me because, Mm -hmm. and, um, I mean, you know, because you've read my books, Mm -hmm. I always am looking to talk to the person who feels like they're not actually being included. And particularly with stress, the most interesting thing is all the things we're talking about, embracing meaning, accepting what's happening in your body. Um, These things are most helpful for people who actually are experiencing the worst stress, even traumatic stress, chronic stress, uncontrollable stress. Mm. You know, okay, I have so many questions already, even just from <laughs> from these few minutes together, because understanding your work, I also find that there is this lack of identification with, okay, how would I frame this? So if often we feel stress or we have asymptomatic responses, and then we think that that is us, mm. like, you know, this is us. And I feel like there's such a separation, a loving separation that you give, like something temporary being experienced to be curious about. something that you get to make a decision about your interpretation of what is happening, but there's still space. It's not like I am not my freak out right now. I am not my, I remember one time when I was having like a, a really nervous moment, I was like, you know what? This isn't me. This is something happening temporarily because something is, is happening and, and it's been leading, something's been leading up to this. And so, you know, I can give myself some grace and expect this to happen. Like yeah. what is that? I is- love that you noticed that because I, I know that actually you aren't familiar with some of my work that like really that what you just said speaks to what I've done in trying to help people deal with difficult emotions as well as mm-hmm. things like addiction mm-hmm. and behavior change. Mm-hmm. Um, I first learned that kind of witnessing mm-hmm. through Zen meditation. Mm-hmm. But I think that the, the the way that I've tried to describe it. So sometimes and you, you could do this with me now, or people who are listening could do this. Mm-hmm. So I often will say, okay, you're breathing right now. Can you notice that you're breathing? Mm-hmm. Right. So you can actually sense your breath and maybe you sense it because you can label it breathing in, breathing out. So clearly I'm, I notice that I'm breathing. Maybe you feel it in and out your nose. So, mm-hmm. okay. You notice the breath is happening. And then I will say, put a hand somewhere in your body where you can feel the movement of the breath. So mm-hmm. I often go to my chest. Sometimes people go to the belly. But if you're breathing, there's movement happening somewhere mm-hmm. and you can sense that through the skin of your hand, through the palm of your hand. Mm-hmm. So there's a part of you that can witness this breath as it's unfolding, mm-hmm. even without like trying to control it. Mm-hmm. But then you can shift your awareness and can you, can you find a part of you that can actually feel the hand on you? So it's a slightly different way of attending to this. Can you be the breather and sense this kind of curious or loving attention of the hand that's resting on you Mm. and observing the breath. Mm. And can you do both at the same time? Can you feel the attention of your hand? And can you also put your attention in the hand and feel the one who's breathing? And I mean, there there are other layers you can go to with this, but there's, there's a way of developing a quality of attention that is not dissociating Mm-hmm. But also, like you said, it's it's and it's it's not even necessarily disidentifying because it's a a willingness to get close to. Mm-hmm. Like it's all it's really is like a caregiving attention. 
-hmm. And it's a way of being in relationship to the part of you who is hurting or worried, uh, who is angry or whatever is craving. Mm -hmm. You can, like a caregiver who is grounded and loving, can move towards that experience and investigate it, but then also maybe has the resources to pull your attention to something else. And Mm -hmm. so from that, like contact can also say, hey, you know what? You need to look out the window right now and notice something that is bigger than this right now. And, you know, there's all these, these skills that can be taught, but I do think there is, it is this. And so what that gives you is this kind of knowing, as you said, that a lot of the things that we judge ourselves for, or that we, um, that cause us despair. It's like, is this Mm -hmm. all I'll ever feel this Mm -hmm. pain, this anger, this heartbreak, this craving, it's, is this who I really am? And also, is this all there will ever be? That quality of attention gives us a little more space around those experiences. And, yes, uh, you know, space, I, space yeah, around space. it. That, we, that, yeah. <laughs> I had, a, I had a, a student once give me a giant Tupperware container because she said, you like, you help us create a spacious container to hold our, our difficult experiences. And I was like, great. And even bigger than Tupperware, but yeah, I understand. (laughs) But like Kelly, this is so important because, you know, when we have, when we feeling, when we feel stressed out and something feels like our imminent death, you know, in that moment of, Oh my God, what is happening? What, you know, I'm panicked. You just did something wrong. Hit reply or like whatever it may be, but it just feels like so terrifying in that moment we are just so tunnel vision. Like we, there is like, this is it. Like this is everything that's going on in the universe. You know, I even find this happens when good things happen. I'm not sure if you you find this experience too. In one of my communities, um, self-coaching mm. society, we say a lot, you know, sometimes overwhelm. We used to be got overwhelmed. Well, I'm overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed. That can also be a stress response or a, a way that we interpret it when a lot's going right. Like mm. I was working with a lady and she's about to have a baby. She just uh, launched a very successful business. She's finishing her manuscript. I'm like, sounds like all your dreams are coming true. Like, sounds like all the things that you've really wanted, like wish coming true, wish coming true, wish coming true. Yeah, you're tired. Yeah, of course you are. Like, yeah, nothing else to say, really. <laughs> like what, even, so even in good situations, when a lot is happening, I just think like, you know, our default is to like to worry and to find something mm. wrong, something to fix. And I mean, <laughs> truly, if I could force everyone to read your book, I would. If I could force, <laughs> if I could like do whatever you can, <laughs> if I could like sit there, like it. you have, you have to finish it because it. I mean, I I talk about my husband nonstop. I'm like, oh, you stress about that? Yeah, you care. Yeah, we care about this. Like, they're stress, meaning linked. And like, I'd like to read some of the things that you say here. Yeah. Choosing to see the connection between stress and meaning can free you from the nagging sense that there is something wrong with your life or that you are inadequate to the challenges that you face. Yeah. I mean, that is, that's really what people think. People Mm -hmm. have been so convinced that stress is always bad for you, Mm -hmm. that if you're doing something as a parent and it's stressful, there's a voice in your head that says it shouldn't be stressful. Therefore, there's something wrong with me as a parent, or there's something mm. wrong with my kid. There's something yep. wrong with my relationship. Same mm-hmm. thing with work, same thing with any goals. If mm. I were really cut out for this, I wouldn't be anxious. I wouldn't have self-doubt. It wouldn't be hard. Mm. Um, and, and so the, when you embrace that link between stress and meaning, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't surprise you anymore mm-hmm. that the things that you care about come with stress. And uh, it doesn't mean you don't still look for ways to make it 
easier, right? It's yeah. to me, this is not this to me, this doesn't have to feel like a huge tension. Yes. Um, it is it's such a surrender to reality. I am a pragmatist, I am not an optimist, nor am I an idealist. Mm-hmm. I'm just super pragmatic. It doesn't help me. <laughs> like if I have the story in my head, it doesn't serve me. It doesn't help me do anything that is of value to anyone else either. So I think that, you know, one of the, the core messages of this book is please be a pragmatist too for yourself. Mm-hmm. Use the messages that support you. Mm-hmm. You will know if it's helping or not. Mm-hmm. If an idea does not help you, you can discard it because even things that are rooted in science, it's not like, um, I mean, humans have a, are unique individuals. And even if a study shows something, what it means is on average, there was a difference. It doesn't mean Mm -hmm. for every single person, this was the single best thing they could do or the single Mm -hmm. thing that worked. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, pay attention to your direct experience. (laughs) Tell me if this makes sense to you as a thought that came up to, I kind of have been thinking and like noodling on recently. I think that we're on the right track. We're we're onto something or something very positive is happening. And I want to be careful with my language here because it can sound flippant, but it's not. It's this. You're you're going in the right direction. Good things. It's a positive sign where you almost don't care what happens to you. Right? So not that you don't care about people, you don't care about your responsibilities, but you know, when I was growing up, I lived in domestic violence shelters as a child and I was happy there. Of course there was, you know, a lot of change, a lot of unexpected. It wasn't ideal. However, someone would define that for a child, but I was happy there. And my dad, I lost him to addiction when he was 19. Well, when I was 19, he was um, not even 60. And anyone who's lived with an addict knows the roller coaster that, that that includes. And when he died, I was at peace. And I'm not saying that this was instantaneous or 24 seven, but I almost feel like, of course, I have wanted outcomes. I have desires. I have, you know, my goals, but, you know, I almost, it's like, uh, maybe don't care isn't, it, it sounds a little bit too casual, but I'm okay with reality, however it unfolds, managing my part, like managing my, what I can contribute, what I can, you know, what it is that I have you know, power over. Does, how does that, <laughs> I just want to hear what you have to, what you think yeah. about that. I mean, you know, what I hear is a, a willingness to embrace life as it is and to meet life as it is. Mm-hmm. And also, um, you know, the ability to create a narrative of your life mm-hmm. that makes sense to you and allows you to also move forward with meaning and purpose, which is, you know, a big part of what embracing stress is about. Mm-hmm. Like if you were to look at somebody else's life and say, magically, could I make sure they never go through that? A compassionate human being is going to say, yes, I'm mm-hmm. going to make sure that that person never experiences abuse or lives with someone going through an addiction as a child. Mm-hmm. Like that should never happen. Mm-hmm. And yet, because we so that's compassion, mm-hmm. but we don't live life in a way where we can go back and fix things like that. Mm-hmm. So the ability to say, here's the, here's the experiences I've had, and here is how I'm going to move forward, mm-hmm. whether it's the way we think about it, the way we talk about it, the way we put it in service mm-hmm. of making a difference for others, mm-hmm. um, that we create these narratives 
that can be redemption narratives or contribution narratives or transformation narratives. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that, you know, so often people who go through something like you were describing, mm-hmm. the initial response is uh, a contamination narrative. Mm-hmm. Like I've been ruined by this. Mm-hmm. There's something now wrong in me because I was abused or experienced these this adversity or mm-hmm sometimes moral injury. I did something that was so wrong. Now I'm ruined. Mm -hmm. Uh, We can have chaos narratives where we no longer think we can make any sense of life and therefore can't make any plans for the future because there's nothing that we can understand about what happened. So how do we possibly make any, have any sense of direction for the future? And so part of, you know, what I think is so important is when we start to tell our own stories, like you were, is how do we choose ways to think about it and talk about it that empower us? Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's really interesting is there's research that when we hear other people talk about traumatic experiences or or adverse life experiences, as they're Mm -hmm. often referred to in research, um, when they talk about them in a way that is not dismissive, but also includes things like post-traumatic growth or making meaning or resilience, Mm -hmm. um, that it actually makes it more likely that when you go through something traumatic, Mm -hmm. you will start to be able to also experience meaning or positive transformation or resilience. So it's important to talk about these things. And again, like we've been trying to do to hold these opposites Mm -hmm. should never happen leads to things that we have to deal with. And also there's this other story we can, we can make a part of our bigger story. Yes. And I learned from you, Kelly, that you know, I, I think one of the reasons I have such deep lasting relationships is because I love to talk about everything like deeply. I'm like, if someone has a problem, I, you can talk about it with me and I'm very comfortable, like whatever it is, something uh, that can feel very shameful, something that can feel really embarrassing, whatever it may be. And when I learned from you that uh, oxytocin, I could, I always get... <laughs> Oxytocin. <laughs> yeah, but I always get it mixed up with the other. I know. Like, I know. I think everybody, everybody might. Um, but oxytocin, how that actually, so when that's released, that the, the cuddle chemical that makes us feel good, it also can arise, it arises in times of stress, wanting mm-hmm. us to reach out and build connections. I swear that's why, like, it, I, I love people. Like, and I used to think it was like a sign of extroversion, like wanting to talk about my problems or when someone has a problem, I'm like, come, come to me, come to me. And I just think, oh, it's so interesting that that's actually just the human response. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about a few things about what you just said. One, I want to say one of the greatest things that you can be as a human being is to not be surprised by suffering. Mm -hmm. This is something I've, I've tried to, uh, to teach when I'm training people who work with people who are suffering, mm-hmm. like you cannot be surprised by the stuff people have endured in their lives. You mm-hmm. cannot be shocked. You cannot be like, that's, that's so horrible. I can't process my own emotions about it right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like, I need to check out or I'm overwhelmed. And so the way you were describing that, that people can talk to you about anything. What I initially, what, what I heard and really resonated with is mm-hmm. if, you know, if you are somebody who, because of your life experiences, you understand Mm -hmm. that human beings suffer. It's not a surprise to you. Mm -hmm. For me, my experience with chronic pain did something similar where I'm not surprised when people have invisible pain. I don't assume that because somebody looks healthy or they look happy, that they are healthy and happy or that they're not carrying life experiences that are extremely painful. 
Um, mm. So I feel like that is, is also part of what it means to embrace stress is when you understand the kind of things we've been talking about, when somebody comes to you and they are suffering and they are struggling, mm-hmm. your ability to stay connected to them is such a gift because you don't have in your head the story that this is impossible or I'm going to catch their pain and suffering. So I need to protect myself, all the things that can get in the way of true empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, and connection. And then, you know, you mentioned oxytocin. Oxytocin is interesting. It doesn't always make us feel good. It, mm-hmm. it has a lot of interesting effects and it arises in a lot of different circumstances, mm-hmm. but oxytocin often helps us feel connected to other people. Mm-hmm. And it, it often um, enhances our social instincts that are around trust and cooperation and, and love and caregiving, particularly when we are with people we already have a, any sense of connection or bond to. And so it is a stress hormone. And many times when you are stressed out, uh, your, your brain and body will experience a surge of oxytocin whose function in that moment is primarily to motivate you to be social, to ask for help, to not be alone, to not put yourself at risk in that way. You know, if you're mm-hmm. struggling and you're alone, you are, uh, you are at greater risk. Mm-hmm. So like your body and brain will often say, no, go reach out for help, be surrounded by people who care about you, do something to help others because that also will support mm-hmm. your well being. But here's the thing I think is really interesting. So not everybody releases a lot of oxytocin when they're stressed. And this is one of the, this is that holding opposite. Mm-hmm. If you grew up in an environment where you learned you can't trust anyone, especially your caregivers, you are more likely to have a different kind of stress response even when it would be really useful to you to reach out. So you might be somebody who has a challenge response to every stress, as in, I'm going to rise to the challenge. It's time for me to fix this. It's time for me to be brave. Um, And if that's the only stress response you ever have, including in situations where you are not doing this by yourself, Mm -hmm. like a cancer diagnosis, Mm -hmm. where it would be really important to learn how to ask for and receive help. Um, right. And then that kind of, uh, limited repertoire of stress responses can, can get in the way of dealing with life. But the, the great thing is, is it's not fixed. So we know that anytime you have a positive relationship or experience of interdependence, mm-hmm. not just being helped by others, but also helping others, mm-hmm. if you can create a role or a relationship, it can even be caring for an animal is that can be huge. This is often a therapy Mm -hmm. that's used for people who didn't learn that they could trust or don't themselves feel that they are trustworthy because of things that they've done or things that other people have told them. Mm -hmm. Caring for an animal can make you good at this type of stress response Mm -hmm. of being able to reach out, of being able to trust and receive other people's kindness. So it's not like we're fixed by our Mm -hmm. early life experiences, but I think it's so helpful to know that all of us have stress strengths and stress habits that might not serve us. I don't like, do you, so you had mentioned some of your stress strengths at my stress strength. My greatest one is actually the making meaning. I will make meaning out of anything, mm, Oh, but I'm really, really yeah. bad about, about letting other people help me. So, Terrible. If, okay, so if I, I literally say, leave me alone. When uh, I will literally say, leave me alone. When someone is trying to help me, I'm still working on it. I have a couple of friends like this and they're very quick to help others, yeah. right? They're extremely capable, 
very resilient. I mean, they're strong humans. And I would love to know, and I'm like, I'm here. And, and, and I'm like, by the way, sometimes I feel bad because I'm like, Hey, I need to talk something out. Hey, um, could you actually, could you show up for me on this day? I'm going to need something. I'm like, you know, this is, it feels very one way. You don't ask me much. And I love to ask, you know, I'm like, and, and any response is fine for me. No, I also love and respect. I sometimes even prefer a no, because it reminds me to have my own boundaries sometimes, Mm -hmm. but how, how could someone who wants to help someone who's not good at receiving help, maybe a little bit like you, uh, how can, how could we kind of bridge that? Yeah. I mean, one thing is to actually be transparent and ask about it. Like I went through a period recently where I told people who care about me, the only thing I want is emojis. And if you send me advice, I'm going to shut down. Uh, So if you want, if you want updates, because people always be like, how are you? What's going on? And then like 9,000 links to like things I should look into because I need to worry more. No, like stop Mm. it. But if you want to send me a heart, that's great. You know what I mean? Mm. Or like a a sad crying emoji to show empathy. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, and I think that, you know, there are a lot of things that, by the way, can get in the way of being able to ask for or receive help. It's mm-hmm. not just life experiences. It's things like depression. It's things like grief. Mm-hmm. It can be things like anxiety. So anyone who is dealing with any of that stuff, uh, it can make it more difficult to both reach out or receive help. So if you're always in that position of wanting to, mm-hmm. you know, ask people, you could just say something. I want you to know that I care. What's the best way for me to show that that doesn't feel like a burden to you or that doesn't uh, feel overwhelming to you? Because a lot of times it's like you had mentioned, sometimes people get stressed out by good things happening. People have fears of happiness for lots of reasons. People have fears of compassion for many reasons too. Like it can bring up a lot of emotions that are difficult. And then it feels like you have to manage that vulnerability along with whatever you were worried about. Yes, yeah, so you have your well. problem and then you've got led in ha- having to manage all the help that you're, that you're trying to block out and then managing yeah, or how it makes you that. feel. Yeah, exactly. And managing other people's feelings and managing other people's. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I'm like, I always tell I always tell my family, my family are really good worriers and really good researchers. I'm like, do you think I don't know how to Google everything that can go wrong? I guarantee exactly. you, you don't need to do that for me. <laughs> That's my family's default coping strategy. (laughs) All the Googling and all the worst case scenarios and all the things that you should do to prevent them. I'm like, I got that covered. Stop sending me links. (laughs) A friend of mine said that to me recently. She's been on this fertility journey for a while. And she's like, if one more woman tells me what worked for her, or if one, she's like, I I know every, she's so hyper. I guarantee you, because I mentioned that I have experienced chronic pain in my life, I guarantee you there are going to be people who contact me who listen to this and tell me that I wouldn't have pain if I just read. There's a certain book that I always get sent a link to. I've read it. If you're listening, I know what that book is uh, or like something else. And I I actually thank you for mentioning that because it really is true. Like sometimes in the same way that in this book, I try to say this book is for you as something to consider. This is not somebody, an expert telling you, you have to think this way or do these things. And this book doesn't work. If you give it to someone and say, you're doing stress wrong, you Mm, need to do stress this way. All of those messages, the sense that like, I know better than you. It's even if it comes from a place of deep caring, we need to leave room for people to have their actual experiences. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And one, yes, 
And one of the reasons I think I love your work so much is I feel the respect that you have for your readers in the way that you write. Mm. It's not like the respect that it's for me, it's, I can just feel it. It, It's just something that is equal footing. This is what I know. I love that. And with my, um, with my friend who is so sick of getting the links like you with the chronic pain with her fertility (laughs) journey, I said, so I said, actually, kind of similar, kind of like, like your suggestion. I was like, so what do you need? Because I don't have children and I, I have nothing to offer. <laughs> and I'm like, so, you know, so what do you need? And she said, a hug. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, yeah, sometimes. And I'm like, because you know, every time someone sends a link, they're really sending something loving. But yeah, I know. that is a great, <laughs> I know. And I, I do try to reframe it in that way because I think mm-hmm. what would, what would lead somebody to do this? And so I, I will make that mindset reset. Mm-hmm. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, then because, that's really important for us too. And it's great that we're talking to like everybody in this interaction and everyone <laughs> yeah. has an opportunity to try to make it a little bit better for everyone involved. I, Cause yes. we don't want to be resentful too. When people are trying to help us, if, if the way that they're doing it is mm-hmm. not exactly what we need, it's so important to recognize the instinct behind it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know. I, I always think like people say, I love you in lots of ways. They say like, you know, remember a jacket or here's a link for your, you know, and uh, sometimes, yeah, of course the, the intentions are there, but of course, like the space for that, see, that's also respect. I also mm-hmm. receive that as respect. It's like, you know what, if you, if you're dealing with something, I I know a couple of things I'm here if you need it tell me what you need. Uh, but that's again, the way that you're approaching this is with such respect for fellow human. And you know how I learned that? I I feel so fortunate that I had been in a lot of uh, demanding teaching contexts. Mm, Like when I first started teaching fitness, one of the first classes I was given, which maybe I actually wasn't ready for, but it was given to me, was a class for people with um, back pain. And it was mostly older adults or people with some, some real physical challenges. Mm-hmm. And there was no way that I was going to teach a class that worked unless I paid so much attention and asked people, how does this feel? What do you need? What actually works? And I learned really mm-hmm. early in that teaching context, the, the only way to create a, a, an experience that is going to serve these people is I need to listen and learn. And I have ideas. I go to the research. I look at what is what are like the movements most likely to support, you know, the reduction in this back pain. And I can try things with people, but they're the ones who tell me, okay, but also because of the arthritis in my foot, I can't do that. So, okay, well, let's think about something else that we can do. And I, I had experiences like that in a lot of different teaching circumstances, whether it's academic teaching, teaching meditation, teaching movement. Mm-hmm. And um, when you when you have spent enough time realizing that people will, people will help you see what works. If you listen and you leave room for them to be honest, like that's, that's how I, so I feel like the, when I write a book, what I'm trying to do is let people know what I'm sharing with you is based on that process. And yet still there's room for you to have a different experience, right? Or for this to some parts of this to connect and serve and others not. And that is really sincere. Mm, it, it, and it never ends either, mm-hmm. right? It's like, it's like the, I'm sure you're asking questions always, mm-hmm. or you're always seeking information. Always. Oh, I know. And, oh man, I wish I could rewrite books because then oh. you learn certain <laughs> things that are like, there's new research and you want to share it. So just yesterday I was doing a, an interview about a different book that, mm-hmm. that came out 12 years ago. 
Is that right? Uh, 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's new research on an idea in the book that was, I'm so excited to share. And I just wish I could share it with everyone, but let me tell you what it is. Cause now I'm excited to tell everybody. <laughs> this was research I wrote about that showed that um, if people are trying to make a behavior change mm-hmm. and they have a goal, they have to meet every week, like mm-hmm. staying sober or spending time doing a positive activity mm-hmm. and they meet that goal. They have an opportunity in like a group therapy setting to draw a slip of paper out of a fishbowl that could have a prize on it. And sometimes a slip of paper just says, great work, keep it up. And sometimes it has something you want, like an iPhone, like, like once in a very rare opportunity where will you actually pull that slip? But mostly it's things like, you know, here's a, a $5 gift card to, um, to a convenience store. Okay. So the studies found this was remarkably effective at helping people make the change even really hard change like addiction recovery. Mm -hmm. And they thought when the research first came out that this was about reward, that like, it's so motivating to think you could get a really big reward that it's, it just motivates people. It drives people to do hard things. And so I included that as an example of ways that you could use um, the, the promise of reward to support change that you don't get an immediate reward for. And that's mm-hmm. still true, but you know, the researchers, they kept at it. And what they realized is probably what was happening is that people were getting recognized in a community of their peers for putting in the effort. And that might've been more important. I'm like, yeah, I bet that's what it was. <laughs> so anyways, I'm excited so, to share this, right? Because that's something also that we need to do and we can offer each other. And the idea that, you know, if, if we're trying to support other people and making difficult changes to see their effort, to witness it, to celebrate their successes, um, as well as helping them recover when they have setbacks, like that's probably more important than the opportunity to win something. But no one will say, I really appreciate all of this support and it means the world to me, but they'll be like, I'm here for my iPhone and you know, right. I'm and on track. Is, right. how, how, like how brilliant of you to see that, that like mm-hmm. that allows us to be celebrated by others, but in a context that is less intimidating, mm-hmm. it's less touchy feely. So we can get witnessed and celebrated and appreciated and seen, but I can tell myself the story that like, oh, next week I'm going to draw the iPhone. That's so smart. Yeah, exactly. I mean, because in many cases, this is unfolding in context where it's hard to take in the good, Uh, like in addiction recovery, where people might not always be comfortable being praised and celebrated. Yeah. Anyways, it's a cool, it's a cool technique. I've heard from a lot of parents who use it too when they're trying to help their kids reach mm-hmm. a, a difficult goal or make a change. Speaking to you is this candy store. Of like, <laughs> yeah, like I feel like we could be here for like three days without <laughs> sleep. Like I, I, I mean, I can keep going. Look out here. Like we, like, what is it? I, this question like, I, is coming out for me with you. What is it that you most want people to feel when they encounter mm-hmm. your work? I want people to feel common humanity mm-hmm. and uh, a, an emotion that's described as kama muta. So they're, they're very connected. Mm-hmm. Um, common humanity is the feeling like whatever it is I'm going through, I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. And I believe that that feeling also gives us an increased sense that we're adequate to our lives. So it's not just, you're not alone, but I believe there's something in knowing that you aren't alone that does give us strength and hope without necessarily having somebody say to us, you will get through this. Mm-hmm. So a lot of my work is trying to 
show to people, reveal to people, you're not the only one who feels this. You're not the only one who's gone through this. Um, you're not the only one who struggles with this. The other thing, Kamamuta, which is my favorite emotion in the in the world. I wish researchers hadn't picked such a funny name. It mm-hmm. sounds like Kama Sutra, right? <laughs> a little, yeah. It's not <laughs> the feeling Kamamuta. So I just call it being moved, which is a, a more uh, like an easy term for it. And this is the feeling you get when you witness either like a sudden act of closeness or connection, like you see a, 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 a child reunited with a parent uh, or you know, like, like a reunion mm-hmm. uh, or like a, the dog greeting their owner when they come home after a long time away, mm-hmm. you or you see a, a wonderful act of kindness, a stranger helping someone or you see something beautiful about human nature, like someone is very brave or someone shows like some amazing physical skill or somebody sings a note. And so the virtuosity is so stunning that like you are moved by the capacity that human beings have to be brave or to, to have these Anyways, you know what I'm talking about, right? You can probably oh, think yes. of that. Oh, yes. And it's this, the feeling of it is your heart kind of swells and sometimes you tear up and sometimes you feel choked up. I love that feeling. And what I have, this is not as present in my earlier work because I didn't even know I had the ability to do this. Mm-hmm. But now I see, and it's just, this is something I'm going to try. I tried very hard to do in my last book, which is uh, about movement. Mm-hmm. And I, I tried to write a book that would make people feel moved, a book about physical movement, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. sports and dance and exercise and hiking and all of that, write a book about physical movement that makes people feel moved. And I'm doing the same thing with the book I'm working on now, because when you're moved, it is such a, a source of resilience and hope. And it, it is harnessing our empathy and our empathic joy and our compassion for others. Um, so, mm. oh, but you can also just do it by watching videos. So, you know, it was, <laughs> writing is hard. Sometimes you need to see it. <laughs> but what you're explaining, I almost, I don't know how you feel about this, but I almost feel like there's like this, in those moments of being so deeply moved, even in a second with something, it's almost like it's like this portal somehow into like divinity or like yeah. a ton, something that's just, perfect. it's transcendent. It's so it's funny. Cause I was doing an interview last week and someone was like, talk to me about awe. Awe is a similar emotion, but it's when you feel like humbled by something really big, often in nature. And some people really love that feeling. And that's how they feel that kind of connection to something holy. It's sacred. And I'm not that person. I don't want to see sky, like stars and mountains. I want to see mm-hmm. a human being like weep with joy or you know, like that's what mm-hmm. I, and I, um, but I feel like they're very similar. And so probably most people are fine tuned, like biologically, mm-hmm. temperamentally to, to want to lie down and look at the stars or want to see like a child reunited with their long lost puppy mm-hmm. and you should embrace whichever one you are. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I always find that I feel that, that emotion when I witness forgiveness. Mm, Yeah. Like almost like what would be deemed like an impossible forgiveness when you just see someone's capacity for that. Like, I don't know, something happens and you know, true, like your work, 
Kelly, I, I, I can't believe our time's up. I mean, I could keep talking. Like, what a joy. I'm I'm so thrilled to connect with you. I cannot wait to read The Joy of Movement, The Joy of Movement, your your most recent book. I know you're working on something new, but could you just give us a little teaser as to what to expect for those who ha- haven't yeah. read it yet? So the upside of stress is um, like I said, if I could sit every human being down in every language and force them to read this book. I would like if that was within my power, I would do it immediately. Like total necessary work. And I think increasingly, I mean, may this be the mainstream, like the, the upside, Oh, he's stressed out. Okay. Let's talk about that. Okay. Let's not freak out. Like, okay. Let's look, you know, you know, let's look at this. What can, what can, what can we look forward to? What can I look forward to with the joy of movement? Yeah. So I wrote the joy of movement. I wanted to help people understand that physical movement is a way of harnessing a lot of different human capacities that bring us joy. Mm-hmm. That movement is not about losing weight, making yourself physically attractive to others or physically acceptable to others. Mm-hmm. Movement doesn't even have to be primarily about physical health and living longer, um, which a lot of people think is like the be all end all. That mm-hmm. movement, physically moving your body, gives us access to the joys of cooperation, mastery, learning, growth, collective joy, which is my favorite experience in movement. That's like when you're all moving together, it's why I teach dance. It's also Mm. why I love flow yoga, Uh, that you're moving together as a community. It brings such an endorphin rush and a sense of hope and Mm. and connectedness to something bigger than yourself. movement can put you in nature, which is for many people, like the greatest way of experiencing, as we said, transcendence, Mm -hmm. joy, unity. Um, Movement is magic when you find the activity that helps you bring out the joy that you really need in your life. The joy of embracing a meaningful challenge, the joy of spending time in nature, the joy of physically expressing joy. Again, another reason I love dance. Um, the joy of doing something meaningful with purpose anyways. So that that's the book is like, I try to show people how and why it's built into everything from what happens in your brain when you get your heart rate up a little bit, or you move with other people, or you spend time in nature. It's kind of like, it's, it's a love letter to all these different ways you could choose to be physically active. It is absolutely not a book trying to convince people to exercise, mm-hmm. nor is it a trick. Sometimes people think it's a gimmick. Like I really want to help you lose weight. So let's see if we can find a form of exercise you don't hate so that you can achieve this much more important goal of making your body look better. No, I like this is a true argument that even if exercise had no benefits whatsoever for your body or your health, it is a way to, um, to relieve depression, anxiety, grief, loneliness, and create deep meaning and joy in your life. So if you want that. I do want that. I, I want that. Oh my gosh. Dr. Kelly, we're going to go, where do people go to follow you, to learn more about you, to work with you? Like where's the best place for them to find all things you? Yeah. So my website will show you uh, lots of ways to, to read, or, you know, I also have a lot of audio programs for people who just like mm. to listen to stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, KellyMcGonagall.com. KellyMcGonagall.com. I hope you'll come back. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm ordering your next book. I am, I'm going to dive in and truly the Let It Be Easy podcast. Thanks you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And may we do this again. Thank you. Much love to you. 
If you like this episode, you'll love my free workshop called Become Your Own Life Coach. Head on over to becomeyourownlifecoach.com now, and I'll teach you how to coach yourself through any of life's problems. I'll see you there.